Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 115. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis, sitting in the captain's chair. Uh, The guys have uh, been nice to me once again. (laughs) And allowed me to do an episode that was kind of in my wheelhouse. Hey, I've been anticipating this episode for like a year. Really? I'm, really? I'm excited for this one. He yeah. named it. Of course he's been anticipating. Well, that's right. He's the one that named it. Yes, kiss his drunk Russian ass, uh, even though you're not Russian. And well, I, don't, I mean, that's Boris Yeltsin. That's right, yeah. That's, 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 put it in the mouth of Boris Yeltsin. That's right. That, was, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, kiss my <laughs> drunk Russian ass. Absolutely, because we're going to talk about the three days in August of 1991, specifically, but it's a, a the, the coup attempt was just one piece of the entire fall of the Soviet Union and the change of everything that had happened. It was a watershed moment for us, anybody in our age. Oh, yeah. We it never was. expected ever that anything like this. We were taught to hate the Russians, the Soviets. I try to use the word Soviets well, for everything that went Well, at the time, before. though, they were synonymous. They were correct. That's right, yeah. Uh, and uh, you, we would never thought that we would ever need to differentiate. Yeah, right. this were the was same. that moment that it was like, "Wow, what's happening?" That's right. We we just right. Uh, this was bigger than the fall of the the, the Berlin Wall. The Very Wall. much so, yeah. and yes. that was huge. That was huge. That was massive. And, I remember watching that on television. Yeah, and some of that was this was the result from that. Oh yes. But what happened in 1991? Iron. Here's the irony of the entire concept. Uh, three days in 1991, Gorbachev is deposed, and a hardline group of plotters, uh, Boris Yeltsin would call them pushchists, if I can get the German pushchists, yes, out of the uh, out of my mouth here, uh, attempted to bring back the hardline Soviet communism. Right, and so it's good that you put that that way as attempted because they were very almost very stereotypical Russian. In the worst um, sense of the word. In the worst yeah. sense of the word, because you know, as we know, Russians don't take a dump without a plan. I, was, I knew that was going to come up. I knew. But that on the other hand, these guys had the worst plan ever because it was almost no plan at all, and they really were not as organized as they needed to be. It was that there was a lot of irony on that. Um, they really thought, I do believe, now there were there were a gang of eight. Right. But I, we'll talk a little bit about some of them. We don't need all of them because most people in the West don't know any of them. Right. Yeah. You know, the the keys who are. Part of probably they're important, but the names won't mean anything. No, there there's really three guys that really are at the at the co- yeah. core of this. Well, let's let's set it up with just the tiniest bit of background. So, because you what you've got is the eighties come, mm-hmm. Reagan's putting the pressure on, right? He's talking about dumping the policy of detente, right? Which goes back to Henry Kissinger in the seventies and all this, and even before. And talking about SDI, and so the kind of the last of the hardliners dies in what? Well, eighty three is when Yuri Andropov, yeah, who yeah. was who was he's a complicated individual. He was I'll a KGB guy. Though, he, right? he was the chairman of KGB, correct? And he was at the height of their power in the seventies. He was the KGB in many respects. Uh, that becomes significant later because it's his disciple who is at the top of this entire right. piece. But he dies, and there's this breathing space of Gorbachev. Not quite. Chernenko. Chernenko, that's oh, correct. Yes, yes. That's right. right. Because actually Andropov, even though he was KGB, I remember him being looked upon as a great improvement over Brezhnev. Correct. Brezhnev was... 
Looking back on it now, Brezhnev was a bit of a, he was a putz. He really didn't have much power. He really thought everybody, we were afraid of him a lot, but really he was a bit of a lazy guy. He just yeah, uh, kind of sleeping. Well, look at that the, nose. He he drank a lot of <laughs> vodka. Vodka. That's yes, right. Vodka. Lots of vodka. That's correct. Yeah, Brezhnev was not. He did not have. He, he wasn't the eighteen. No, he was not. But he was the last guy standing, and he was you know in the early days, right after you know Khrushchev, he was able to get it together. But see, Russians don't like change. Yeah. They, they they want a strong man in position. Very German in many ways. We've talked about that. We talked World War One. I think most Russians might take offense at that. <laughs> oh well, now that's correct. But that's, I think even back then yeah, they might have taken. Well, I mean, but that yeah. explains where Putin. I mean, well, that's yeah. what, see, he that's took, exactly he right. He took advantage of that desire for the strong yes. man that they no, it's not the, the desire for a strong man. It's being compared to the Germans. Oh, I'm sorry, oh. got you. Well, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's an irony for you. That's right because the the the, the hatred of the, of the Nazis and the Germans, you know, it still exists even today right. because the grandchildren and great grandchildren they don't forget those but sort of things it's, there. There's a kind of a succession, kind of rapid succession. Brezhnev dies. Andropov, Andropov was only around for a and short he time. Was, and Andropov actually wanted Gorbachev, who is much younger. Yes. He actually wanted Gorbachev as his successor. Uh, and it didn't happen. Yes. Konstantin Chernenko, who was actually number two guy, he almost got it when Andropov ascended. But he... He ascends for like 15 months. He's terminally ill when he ascends, believe it or not. That's something that wasn't generally known at the time. But yeah, Gorbachev is 20 years younger than the Very rest much of the guys. so, and a totally different. Because he wasn't around at the time of the revolution. That's right. Like the rest of them at the early days of the uh, kind of the Civil War, the that's whites right. versus he, the reds, and ni- all the way through like what, 1922? And that's all that. right. Yeah, he's, none of that's, that's all so gone. So Gorbachev <coughs> is a whole new generation of, of leadership. That's exactly right. I mean, he's born around World War II. Yeah. Right. He's yeah. Totally. He's yeah, the he, next generation. Yeah. In, in many many respects, and I'll get I'll, I'll I'll say this much: Gorbachev is either sainted or detested by most people in history, depending on what side of the political aisle you fall on. He's actually. Well, but which political aisle? Because the U.S. political aisle is not the same as the Russian, the German, the French. That's whatever. correct. I was English. about to go there. That's I mean, right. I, I, we'll get to all this, but I. He sort of, you know, he's sort of one of history's biggest losers. Yeah, we've talked about well, that. While at yeah. the same time, he could have been one of history's biggest winners. Well, in he many, could have been George Washington. In many respects, he, he, he was isn't. he was both. He had, but despite himself, yeah, uh, because the change in the fall of the Soviet Union could never have happened without his ascendancy and his bringing right. forth of perestroika and glasnost, the policy of being open. But that's the thing, though. That's why I agree with, with Martin that he falls more on the side of the loser. Yes, he was successful with glasnost and perestroika, but the problem was he never wanted the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He wanted to transform Correct. the Soviet Union. He let go of the reins and didn't realize that the horse would run off without him. Right. Which he was probably counting what? on that they like a he, strong leader. But the yeah. problem is, by letting go of the reins, he was no longer a strong leader. Yeah. There's some and this that. Union, new union treaty, which was basically a, libertari- a Russian libertarian's dream, basically. Yeah, that's it. It was devolving a lot of the central power to the republics, which really is a good thing. It was a fait accompli anyway because they were already breaking away. This was an attempt. It had all, it had well, Eastern Europe, none of the republics had broken away. Right. Well, this they is prior were, to that. They were, uh, the new, this is what let them do it. The new Union Treaty was to be signed by Gorbachev on 
the 19th of August, 1991. Yeah. He was, he was in the Crimea. Yeah. But, so Gorbachev... They was going to change it from the USSR, from the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, to the Union of Soviet Sovereign Republics. Right. That's what... And that's what... That moment, uh, that... It's, it's a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, but he's... He's, he's, he's expecting to still retain power. He's, that's correct, yes. He's out there... Uh, again, promoting this new openness, this glasnost and perestroika, and he's meeting with Reagan, and he's opened the wall, and... Russia has an election in June of that year. Yeah, and the And INF, Boris Yeltsin becomes the first president of Russia. Yeah. That's really what did him in. He couldn't do that. You can't have, for better or worse, there can only be one leader. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. By, by allowing the Russians to... Russia well, itself to create all to, of them, but yes, Russia because Russia, it's the it's the dog that uh, yeah it's it's the wag the dog that wags the tail yeah. tail away the dog yeah uh, that's great once they once that happened you have to have Yeltsin's goodwill but he didn't realize that he thought Yeltsin would be just you know just one more seat at the table and he probably brought a, a, a very fallacy uh, dominated view of what the USSR would be uh, as sovereign republics. He was, I guess, because obviously I don't know the man's mind, but I'm guessing he's looking at this as this is the Russian United States. Exactly. Where the president of each of these republics is simply a governor. That's, that subordinate is subordinate to the will the, of the, the Supreme the national Soviet. government. Which, if the founders heard me say that, would say, no, that's not at all what we intended, but that's really what it has that, become. Yeah, that's right. And that's, and exactly that's probably what he's looking at as the model. Very much so, and because but he still wanted to be at the top of the model. That's correct. And he's, they're all their experience, though, is still this very much this Politburo mm-hmm. Presidium, these committees. That's right. And kind of, he's the, you know, what they used to call the in the mafia. What is it? The consigliere? No, the capi. The capo. The capo, capo di tutti capi. Yes, yes, the capo di tutti capi. The boss yes, of the, the bosses. bosses. That's correct. That's, That's what he wanted. You know, and, and a mafia reference for Russia is pretty apt, but <laughs> it really is. You but know. you know what? What, the, what an interesting thing. We talk about apt references in, in Russia. The most pure form of capitalism, in my opinion, exists in Russia, in the black market. It is the, because it is literally caveat emptor, buyer beware, and whatever the, the public wants, the public will get one way or the other. Yes. It's very Ferengi-like. Yes. Yes. Uh, it is the both the, the purest and the worst form of capitalism correct, in what was the Soviet Union. Right? Yeah, because it, become, it, it becomes a, a, it's a truly league of un- oligarchs. Well, it's a, truly an unregulated uh, economy. Right. As any black market is. Black markets are, by definition, the most pure form of yeah. capitalism. So you get to, you get to 89, 90, 91... Of course, Reagan leaves office. You got President Bush comes in. Right. You're they're loosening up the reins. Uh, Eastern Europe is breaking away. Right. Reagan you, had that famous got, speech in front of the, the the wall, saying, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. wall." That was watershed. Yeah. It was. Yes. And then it actually happens. And right. then it happens. And and Gorbachev is riding this wave and not realizing you can't really control it's it. It's not a wave. He's riding the tiger. He's riding the tiger. Yeah. Well, that's right. And he, and he does his very best to use the systems that he has in place, which, of course, is what he knows. He's expecting the ability 
for communism to rule this, because that's what everybody knows. But once you start having democratic elections, the people don't choose that. Right. <laughs> once that's, you that's have a say mm-hmm. and you have an option, mm-hmm. after 70 years of having no options and no say, that's right. of course they're going to pick the other guy. And, of course, in Yeltsin's case, there were actually six people that ran against Yeltsin. It was a, it was a basically a free-for-all to right. get it. And he's the one that comes to the top. He was an outsider. He was actually kicked out of the Politburo before. Yeah. He even committed yes. suicide, tried to commit suicide at one point. Uh, but he became seen as and this didn't man. Get helped. And didn't <laughs> because that's usually what they. <laughs> yeah, it was no. usually well, a because help he suicide. he was not necessary. He he right. was seen as kind of this this not want to say a buffoon that's too strong. He was no Jeffrey Epstein. What? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, there's a yeah. Because usually in Russia, you fall in a bullet four times. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Very quickly. Yeah, it, it, but Yeltsin, had, the people really believed in him, and they saw him as a complete different thing. And it got so much so, you talk about Gorbachev not being able to control what was going to happen. He's basically willing to say yes to anything that happens. Yeltsin is brought in in June. In July, and irony of ironies, Gorbachev asked for the wiretap. I'll tell you that right up front. But there's a wiretap that the KGB has put on the conversation that happens between, it's actually on July 26th, I can give you the date, where Gorbachev and Yeltsin are talking about what this new union treaty is going to look like. And Yeltsin's pretty much basically telling him how it's going to be. He's telling him where the bear sits, and he says, all the old guard guys are out. We're going to start this thing fresh. Well, the KGB is recording this. Vladimir Kriukov is the head of the KGB. He is probably the main player of this entire thing here. He's, he was a disciple of a drop-off. And Gorbachev raises, wrote, raised him to the head of the KGB in 88. He'd been there about three years. And he, he was seen as a disciple of Gorbachev into perestroika, but he discovered very quickly that that dog don't hunt. And he became one of those silent dissenters. Uh, he, wrote, he writes his memoirs years later and just basically just savages the entire concept. But at the time, he was being a good little boy. Until he hears on the wiretap that... All you guys are out, including him, and that's when he says, "No, we're going to fix this." So, so Gorbachev, non-red dragon. That's yeah. right. Gorbachev takes a vacation to his Dhaka. Dhaka. It's called Foros. It's on the. It's on the Black Sea in Crimea, and he had had this built like three or four years earlier. It's like a state palace. In fact, yeah. there was a bit of a scandal because of the old cost overruns for that. But that's what's his, and he was. That's he would do this every year in August. Which, ironically enough, George Bush would do the same in Kennebunkport. <laughs> right. uh, you know, that, that's it's not an unknown well, thing. Well, you leave, you know, you leave Washington in August because it's it's it's, damn, it's, it, it's damn the That's right. Teddy Roosevelt was doing. They've all done that, yes. and that's just when you do that. That's when all the folks take their take their uh, vacations. Well, Gorbachev is going to do this for a month, and it's right it's right before he leaves that all this conversation happens. This is when Kriukov, along with a man by the name of Boris Pujo, who was the head of the Interior Ministry. Uh, and six other folks. Uh, Valen- we don't care. You don't need them. That's right. There's, there's okay. a gang of eight of them. Those two are important. But various hardliners who've been kind of sitting in the weeds. Well, yeah. they, they're they, okay. they, the way things have been going. That's yeah. correct. And, and they've well, been colluding all this time. And yeah. Krugov was kind of brought into this basically saying, you know, we don't like Gorbachev, do we? You know, we need to get rid of Gorbachev. And that's when he realizes, shit, we're out if we don't do something. And it has to happen because the new union treaty was set to be signed the day Gorbachev returns, the 19th of, Ju- of August. He's supposed to come back that week, that, that day, and that's the next day is when the, the 20th is when things going to be signed. That's when the plotters, ironically, only about a week ahead of time did they get their shit together. 
The man behind all this is Vladimir Kurikov with Boris Pujo uh, that put their forces together and say, we can do this and take over everything. Another, another important man that was essential is the head of the army, Dmitry Yazov. He's All right, the, he's the marshal. Yeah, you, you got to have those are the three I'll guys. Because these are guys that they are ready then yes. to, if they need to, they're going to grab Yeltsin, they're going to grab Gorbachev, oh, oh. and it's going to be right back to the old Lavrenti Beria, the nine millimeter uh, headache. And yes, but that's when they realize there's no going back. Is when once the coup starts, they 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 send somebody down. It, August nineteenth is a Monday. When the coup, the actual beginning of the coup, uh, they send something. Gorbachev's down on a Sunday. They send somebody down. They cut his, uh, cut his communications that afternoon to the outside world. So he's a, he and his wife Raisa and her his, their daughter and and her children. They're all there and basically it's house arrest. Uh, they confiscate the nuclear codes, bring them back, and they put in place one more guy. I have to mention uh, who is the kind of the idiot savant of the no, not even a savant. He's just an idiot. Gennady Yaniev. He's the guy that. Was the vice president? There had never been a vice president of the Soviet Union until a few months earlier, and it was him. And he, they had to do this quasi-legal, so he becomes the acting president with this, with the advisors around him, and they uh, they end up basically bringing the army that morning to keep the peace in Moscow. But this happens all over. Well, all over like Russia. France, the capital is the only important city. In, in many respects, you're exactly right, and that's what had. Uh, and that's where they really lose it, is because they have a press conference. Uh, it goes back and forth throughout the day. Uh, Yeltsin won't shut up, essentially. Right. Yeah. Because they, I mean, that's the they don't have control of the, the ability to communicate. They don't have control of the, the Usenet groups. Right. They don't have control of what's called uh, medium-range shortwave. Right. And, you know, it, it's... It, they those have, things allow... Yeltsin, that and occupying the White House, which is the Russian parliament. Right. These things allow Yeltsin a platform mm -hmm. because he's in a place of power, and that's also going to be very visually and emotionally strong for the Russian people. Kriukov and his cronies were very worried that it would appear to be a coup. They didn't want their, the optics, we, we don't want to paint them too inept on this. They recognize we've got to do this as a coup, but it can't look like it. It has to look like it's a natural source of things just correcting itself. We're, we're large, we're in charge, we're good guys, and we're just doing the right thing. That was the optics they worried about. The problem is Boris Pujo was head of the Interior Ministry. He's supposed to shut down all the non-state controlled media, which he does, Russian media. But there's foreign media all over the place there. And where it really goes off the rails is that first evening, it's pretty peaceful actually. Bush has not decided what he's going to do. Major, uh, John Major in Britain and uh, Francois Mitterrand in France, they're kind of watching. Because they realize, you know, if these guys do take control and we piss them off, all of our good work is going down the tubes. Right. Because right. you, can't, you, can't you throw, don't know these guys. You can't throw they knew Kriukov, but yeah. nobody else. Yeah, you can't really throw your support behind Gorbachev too quickly. That's correct. Because if he's toast, and because you've got to kind of leave your option. And, the, and that, that was, that was uh, the, I mean, all the Western... I mean, it's a shame that, you know, that real politic has to kind of shoot in instead of being... I, mean, was very much, I mean, when we're watching this on television, you know... Until Boris Yeltsin climbed up on that tank, exactly at noon that first it day, it always looked like you know anything could happen. Mm -hmm. But once he climbs up on that tank, it was over. Yeah, and he starts talking to the people. Mm -hmm. 
that yeah, you're right. It was it was absolutely over. It wasn't that it wasn't like all right, everybody went home at that right, point. Right, no, but it was, but the writing was on the wall because it was it was very much a George Washington moment. It was, and it, although all, it, it could have gone south, there's a couple of moments have. where it almost did. Because the only thing left at that point then for the plotters is it's really time to start shooting the crowds. Almost, they had it, one. They had one option left that takes place. It's very important that Monday that that evening, that Monday evening, they had scheduled a press conference, and you can see this on YouTube. Uh, it's not easy to find because it's in Russian, but it is out there. And you can watch the whole press conference that they scheduled, 6 p.m. Moscow time. Gennady Yaniev was in the center. Uh, Boris Pujol was to the side. Grikov was not present. Neither was uh, Yazov for whatever reason. Yazov supposedly wasn't there because they don't want to look like a military coup. Uh, Kriyakov's absence has been debated and debated all over the place why he wasn't there. Nevertheless, he wasn't. And it was... He had a plan to take a dump and by God, he was going to do it. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and what happened is... That, and Pujo's got this all lined out. He has got folks in there, uh, all the non-state-controlled media... It has been shut down. Also, all the foreign press media, a lot of them are, they have, Pujo has his people in place to kind of self, you know, short circuit anything that goes wrong. It's very, very planned out. He's the one that's done all this. The problem happens when, A, Yanayev looks like an idiot. He, he tries to comb over his freaking hair to cover his bald spot. And he's just, he's sweating. He's got his handkerchief out. And he's supposedly the face of all this. So you have all these optics going on, and there's a moment where a young lady uh, who is a member of, and I can't give you the Russian name for the newspaper that she works for, but it was one of those they supposedly shut down. She snuck in. She wasn't supposed to be there. She gets the microphone, and she says in, in English, basically, so are you going to say that this was a coup d'etat last night that you all performed? Was this more like 1917 or 1964? And of course, after that, it all goes downhill. The plotters had the moment. If they could show themselves in, you know, in wise control of everything, it would have all gone away. And then Yeltsin could have got up on his tank for all he wanted to, and it would just have seen, well, you know, well, he's the idiot. Well, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Because, it's a little, yeah. Because, you know, as in any coup, in any government, you know, it really is, and this is something that our government is, is very much supposed to be cognizant of, but despots almost never are. Right. Is that you... Are, you govern entirely by the will of that's, those you govern. And that's now, it. Now, you may browbeat them into to giving their assent, but beyond a certain point, they'll take it away. That's right. And, and that's what happens. the Russians were at that point because they had been given a taste of choice. Mm-hmm. And like I said, after 70 years, of course you're going to pick the other guy because you're tired of this guy. You're well, tired of everything. And ironically, it's Gorbachev's uh, policies of perestroika that brings in these free markets. You get McDonald's coming right. to Moscow about a year and a half before this. And that's just all of a sudden you can choose what you wear. Uh, you have a choice in what milk you can buy, right. what food you can get, and all these all these things that had been right. pretty much and locked Reagan out. Reagan is huge over there. He is a huge, huge celebrity over there. Uh, partially, which is this is Gorbachev's own fault because he's trying to, to build a working relationship sure. uh, with him. And they actually apparently had a good relationship. They did. Reagan just wasn't willing to to give Gorbachev what he wanted, which basically would have uh, uh, let them go on for maybe as long, probably several more years. But 
George H.W. Yeah. Bush had a much more cordial relationship with Gorbachev. Uh, they, uh, he, and Barbara, uh, and along with Gorbachev and his wife Raisa, had a very warm relationship that was strongly tested during this time. Uh, in fact, that was one of the things when uh, when it all finally ended. Uh, his was the first call to come through uh, uh, to uh, to Gorbachev after they restored communication. I'm getting a little ahead of myself ah, here, though. Gorby, I'm really sorry about that, man. That's right. Well, because <laughs> but you can come visit us at Kennebunkport anytime you want. By that time, it, you know the United States had taken positions, and it was it was very clear. Right. That first day, we didn't know, uh, but when that press conference went south and went bad south, all of a sudden it was pretty well because George Bush, believe it or not detested Boris Yeltsin. He thought he was a buffoon. Well, he, he did, Yeah, and because he's, he's just kind of come out of nowhere. He thinks, okay, here's your stereotypical Russian on all the bad reasons. Right. Until he climbed aboard that tank. And that was that was done at noon that first day. Uh, and they had, I mean, literally, this is, Vladimir Kriukov had ordered in the army. Right. And they but were they, they were, were there. And I mean, right, but that's, the, that's what I was talking about. You know, you still have to have the consent of the governed. That's right. And even the army was not going to be behind this because they very easily could have crushed oh yeah everything well that was kind of the break point was they backed away from actually opening fire and part of that was Yeltsin in his brass because that moment when he in the tanks there's three T72 tanks that are coming into the White House parking area Boris Yeltsin along with several others moves forward and he basically says they're not and he, he writes this later they're not going to run over the president of Russia. They're just not going to do that. Think about it this and way. And they blinked. This is like that one guy. It's a Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square. Square. Yeah, it's a Tiananmen Square moment. Exactly. Standing off against those tanks who are trying to avoid running him over too. That's right. But eventually, and I don't think anybody ever heard from that guy again after this was all over, right. unfortunately. But in this case, mm-hmm. the guys driving the tanks really did blink. They did. They stopped because they knew they couldn't do that. And Yeltsin, along with several others, climbs up on the freaking tank and shakes their hand. Yeah. And then shakes his hand into the sky. And, of course, this is all over the world. At the, you know, oh, yeah, this is televised live. Absolutely. Yeah. So all of a sudden, everything is, you know, they, they tried to pull it back with the press conference. That fails. So the only thing they've got left, basically, is to storm the place. And that's what starts Kriukov, Pujo, and the others basically decide, okay, it's called Operation Thunder. And they're going to do it the night of the 20th. They're going to do it at midnight. So... Yeltsin is sending out press releases left and right because the foreign press is all over this. Well, at Izvestia, the uh, main newspaper, they actually threatened to go on strike if they would, didn't allow his, his uh, press releases and his, his speeches and what have you to be printed. That's right. Think about that. That's right. The people who work at the major newspaper, state-owned newspaper, were willing to go on strike, which you cannot do. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, in, in fact, that's what Yeltsin had called for. That was his first pushback was he called for a general strike. It didn't really take off, but by that, but that was before the tank incident, and it really didn't need to because he calls for people to rally after rally. You've got a hundred thousand people in downtown Moscow, basically on the streets, willing to defend this embryonic democracy of theirs. And that's how. And Yeltsin, give him credit. You know, a lot of people don't think don't like him much. He really did seize the moment, and he recognized, yeah. People have got something precious here, and we're going to remind them. Even if he was a buffoon opportunist, he did the right thing. He did the right thing. It's exactly it. So before we go any farther, let's have a bourbon break, boys. We've we've gone quite a long way here. And it's not a vodka break. 
No, this is not a vodka break. That's right. We, we decided that. That's right. But, uh, yes. uh, but most Russians really appreciate bourbon. They can't duplicate it, and they know that. But there's a, there's still a very you can't uh, make it out of potatoes. That's right, and that's one of the things that uh, a lot of a lot of Russians really appreciate this uh, this unique American alcohol that uh, we. Make I say here. we charge them double. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's probably some sort of a tariff on that. I don't know. Uh, just getting it into Russia, even today, is not easy. Yeah, uh, they don't. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, it's 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 still possible. So, since I brought it up, I, I will go first. Yes. So, uh, you know, we do not. We have never talked about Jim Beam as one of our drinks. We have not. That's right. Because it is not considered a higher end bourbon. We tend to stick to the mid to higher range bourbons. Yeah. We uh, but my kids uh, gave me for Father's Day this three pack. Uh, one was a, and it's a small, like half size of the normal bottles of bourbon, yeah. uh, the 375 milliliter, which is a good sampler pack. That's a good way to put it. One was a Basil Hayden's, which we, we all Tweed. love. Yes, love, love that one. That was a nine-year Knob Creek, another excellent bourbon. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's going to be a monster. And then the third one was this Jim Beam Black Extra Aged. Now, that just kind of blew my mind because, yeah. you know, what is this doing with these two things? Right. So I decided to try it. Boys, this is smooth as hell. Well, This good. has got a really good taste. Uh, it's almost got a little bit of sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, there is no serious afterburn at all. You get a little bit of tingling really? in, the, in the sinuses when you take a little bit of a drink. Uh, it, it, it's just, I'm really surprised. I like this. This is a really good bourbon. Would never have expected to say that about a Jim Beam just because it's just not one we've gone to before. Well, uh, not because, yeah, like I say, even a bad bourbon is still bourbon. Right. Come on. Well, I'm kind of regretting not pouring that now that you've had such this, you know, marvelous ecstatic experience yeah. here. Well, you so, got, uh, the two of us have poured uh, a couple glasses of Robert's Four Roses Small Batch. I was going to ask you, sung, what are we drinking? Because you poured it. I don't remember. We've already sung the praises of uh, Four Roses. This was. This is the small batch. Yeah. So this is a step up from what we normally get. Yeah. Most okay. definitely. Yeah, it's, it's and, a little bit uh, It goes without saying it's it's excellent, but uh, I like it's got a tiny bit of citrusy uh, to it. Uh, wow. I, a little I bit of sweet. Up, but I but yeah, you're right. A little bit of sweet, um, very smooth very finish. Smooth. Uh-huh. Uh, just a little bit of uh, tingle on the tongue and a really good chew. No burn. No, it's not. No. It doesn't have that at all. No. Which you is kick it right back. Yeah, that's that's a that's a cool thing. Which you should never do with bourbon. No, not at all. But you could. I mean, you could. Be. I mean, good bourbon. Right. Good bourbon should be sipped and enjoyed. Uh, uh, it does. It doesn't. It doesn't go back to the olfactory mm-hmm. senses and all that sort of stuff like that. It just. Uh, it just kind of goes down. Very yeah. smooth. Very very smooth. Yeah. So I just pop the rest of mine down. So I'm sure Boris Yeltsin would like it. I'm sure he would. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying that because uh, I just you guys had the first drinks out of that. I've had that sitting up there for quite some time. Oh, really? I meant to take it to our last recording session, and I forgot. Oh, so it's been waiting for for us to try. Well, here we it's, are. It's super smooth. Again, just maybe just a little orange peel, I guess, maybe, and a little bit of sweetness, and a really good chew. You're far a better scanner than I am, sir. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, I can't possibly pull those. Things. Tastes out. It's just good. I like it. It's, it's good. It's, it's very good. It's very good. Yeah. Stays in the back of the throat. That's good. Yeah. Kick, kick it right back. It's good. So, right. let me ask you this because uh, we could keep going on and on and on, and we don't necessarily need to do that. Uh, so, I guess the the question that the people of our generation uh, were asking, the questions we were asking at the time, uh, those of us who were 
not too bright we're probably probably caught totally off guard but I mean we're all caught off guard but I think for those of us that were following uh, someone like Reagan and Thatcher and even the Pope in uh, fighting communism this was the expected outcome at some point now it caught us by surprise in that it happened when it did and how quickly it did Uh, but is it fair to say that this was truly an inevitable thing because you know all civilizations if we count the Soviet era as a civilization because it was definitely unique unto itself they all end they all have their downfall Uh, at some point even our country will will see some sort of fall from its status a transition of some sort of some sort whether that's into something entirely different or just into a lower tier uh, power Uh, but was this truly inevitable that democracy of some form I wouldn't exactly call it a perfect democracy now but uh, they still you know they still have sort of elections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think it is, but I think we didn't know that until it happened. I think uh, it takes 30 years for perspective to realize just exactly how inevitable this was, but it shouldn't have happened the way it did. It was much quicker, thanks to, ironically, the very plotters who attempted to ha- return back to the way things were, ended up accelerating everything and all that they were trying to save is exactly what they caused the downfall of. Well, the because actual dissolution didn't happen until four months later. Yeah. Um, and honestly, you could make an argument that once the... I, I think you make the argument that once they made the decision to sign that treaty, mm-hmm. that even four months later could have still happened on schedule. Maybe not that quickly then, but with the devolution of all that power, all that centralized power to the individual republics... Gorbachev had planned on being at the po- at the top of it, but because of this coup, Yeltsin has risen to the ascendancy. He basically tells Gorbachev the next two days, no, you won't do it this way. You're going to do it this way. All the appointments he made to replace those plotters, because they're at the top level, folks, they end up, uh, Yeltsin vetoes most of them. and says, yeah. no, you're going to put these guys in here. Yeah, because Yeltsin really does emerge now. As the, and, as the force. As the guy. And, and again, this and is... And that's what hastened things. how Gorbachev ends up being one of history's great losers in that... If, if the coup doesn't happen, then he stays at the top. Maybe he works with Yeltsin, and this transformation is gradual. Mm-hmm. And maybe he gets to hand it off to somebody else down the road, and we still have a sort of Soviet Union. Maybe Putin still ends up in charge of it. Who knows? But this the failure of the coup really is this moment of when you can really tip over the whole apple cart. That's exactly right. And they, they do. Even and, though and Gorbachev comes back, he comes back basically to his own end. Yeah, I mean, basically you know, he's, yeah. he's... He comes he's back out. basically to do what he did, which is basically oversee the, the dissolution. That's right. Yeah, because so just once let it go apart. That happens, As opposed to a transformation, which is what he wanted. Right. Well, I think the dissolution, given that treaty, was inevitable. Yeah. I mean, maybe not four months, maybe four years. Yeah, exactly. But within a very, very short time frame. Yeah, I mean, because once you decentralize that amount of power, it's like the the Articles of Confederation. Yep. You can't do anything at the national level yeah. once you have. Now, I, I have not looked at the the details on that treaty, but I would guess very much that the individual republics had a great deal of control over the military assets in their republic. Uh, that was one of yes a little bit but the, see there was still they that was one of the few things that they wanted to keep together was the, the, the common defense that that military aspect but see the problem is you have used 
the Soviet military in Lithuania that January to try and suppress the revolt. You've done it in Chechnya. You've done it in Georgia. You've done it in Azerbaijan and a couple... I didn't pronounce that right. Azerbaijan. Yes. You've done that on the last few years, not to mention the whole Afghanistan debacle. Yeah, if, I, that's it, important. Too. That is very important here. If all of that had not been the case, of, then, then of, it could yeah. have. They, you could have made the case for let's stay together for the common defense. But there's no faith in these folks. Well, this also comes at a time when, just like the U.S., you know, they're looking at what do you do with the peace dividend? Mm-hmm. Because essentially, and it's a little bit early for that phrase to be bandied about, but essentially by now that's what we're talking about because. We are no longer looking at the Soviet Union as the existential threat that it was. Mm-hmm. And certainly after this, we are not. Right. Irony because of, there is no... Irony of ironies. It is what really, what ends up defeating the entire coup is, like you said, we're not going to fire on civilians. That's Yazov. That's the field marshal. They were literally, Kriyakov was, they were going to storm the place. They were going to spirit Yeltsin away and they were going to crank down. And it was it was Yazov who says, nope, they kill three civilians by, uh, in, as part of an altercation not far from the White House. When the word gets back to Yazov, he says, shut it down. Kriyukov, yeah, Kujo, I mean, and, the, and the other really guys what, go back and says, no, you can't do this. He said, watch me. Yeah, that's really and what I'm made not going to turn into Pinochet, which is that's his, a quote from him. Yeah. Uh, they, they, that's what, it was the military man. In yeah. many respects, what failed that coup was when he decides to grow a stone. Set of stones and says, "We're not going to do this. Yeah. We is, don't do this. We well, don't fire on our own people." Well, and it was it was which is very much yeah. You know that's new because yeah. absolutely the Soviet Union does fire on that's its own well, people. Well, see, and that's see, and that's correct. But yeah, Yazov was the a, optics of it going back to looking like the czar. It's it's a political now, yeah. and Yazov had a had a brilliance to him. Uh, and irony of ironies, all these uh, plotters themselves would be pardoned by the Duma. Two years later, yes, with the exception of Boris Pujo, who committed suicide uh, at the failure of that. But, but yeah, the, the, now the, did he commit suicide by four bullets? By following uh, four bullets? No, no, actually, no. It's uh, <laughs> but, uh, it, irony of ironies. His uh, his he he did this. His wife uh, was there. Uh, she asked that he shoot her first. She did not want to live without him. Her father was was living there with him in Moscow. This is after he gets the call from the prosecutors, and he just he says one word to him. He says, "Come." And he shoots his wife on her insistence and then puts a bullet into his own mouth. Her father opens the door and brings them in. She dies like three days later in the hospital. She was going to recover, but she herself commits suicide in the hospital through other means. And she she leaves a note for her children saying, I'm sorry, my dears, we have to leave you. Please don't take offense. Uh, it's really one of those great tragedies that yeah. uh, you know, basically Pujo really believed that he was trying to do the right thing. And... It's just, but you know, the, the military backing away—that's really you, that's the heroic moment. In addition to Yeltsin, but the the military the, leadership backing is, off. And from, I, I should say this—that's the army, yes. because there are three different military forces here. The KGB oh, yeah. has their own military forces, yes, and so do. does Interior. That's Kriyakov, Pujo, and, yeah. and Yasov. But Yasov's got the lion's share, and he, when he says no, we won't, all of a sudden the Interior Ministry forces against Pujo's orders. Well, we're not either. And then the KGB says, well, we're not either. Yeah. And that's when it all falls apart. And none, that's, of, none of them want to be seen as the butcher well, of Moscow. I think those guys could see the writing on the wall. Because well, once you see what's going on, all those people gathered around, you see Yeltsin on the tank, and 
you know, you're told to go in and basically slaughter everybody to get to Yeltsin, which was never going to work. If no. they went in, he was going to die. Well, there there was a, there's a moment uh, where one of uh, where one of Yazov's uh, subordinates, uh, General Lebed, who was a huge, he was head of the airborne forces uh, for the entire uh, Soviet Union. Uh, he was a, vic, uh, a veteran of Afghanistan. He goes and meets with Yeltsin, and he tells him. They're giving the order for us to pull back from around you. The attack is coming. All it takes is a few missiles and this place will go up like the sun. You really need to surrender. And Yeltsin says, no, why don't you join us? And he doesn't. But it's later on that evening, Yeltsin kind of figured out, these guys don't want to do this. And shortly after that is when Bush calls Yeltsin and all of a sudden you've got international recognition and things kind of go off to the point where eventually Yazov says, screw this, we're doing it. But Yazov says... I, there's only one way out of this because Yeltsin's going to have our heads. We're going to see Gorbachev, and he convinces Kriukov to go with him. They fly down to Crimea that next day. Oh yes, yes, yes. Very important here, yes. uh, because at this point Gorbachev has convinced his personal bodyguard, who is run by the KGB, yep. and the head of that has been co-opted uh, by the plotters. He convinces his own guards to not let these folks in. Literally, they're going to shoot these guys, Kriukov. Yazov, all these other folks, and, he, and uh, they literally come to the gates, and the guy who's in charge says, what do you mean you're not going to let us in? He says, we're going to shoot your ass, paraphrased, <laughs> if, you, if you try this. We have orders from President Gorbachev. Go down to the, to the guest house, the bottom, and wait. And that's when Gorbachev says, you turn my communications on before I'll talk to you. And of course, once that happens, it's over. And Kriukov and Yazov fly back to Moscow that night with Gorbachev. Kriukov is on Gorbachev's plane as a human shield. They arrest his ass on the tarmac, and he's and he's put in prison. Uh, and uh, and so is Yazov, and like I say, Pujo commits suicide. Uh, and ironically, they they released him two years later. I still don't get that one. I guess because Gorbachev's out of power at this point. Yeltsin, you know, he's in charge, and yet for whatever reason, they decided well, to pr- treat them mercifully. Well. Stalin would have had him killed. We know that. Well, you know, you, there's a valid question here. Can you even hold them? Because if they were presumably uh, uh, put in jail for committing treason mm-hmm. against the state, that state no longer exists. That's correct. Does the mm-hmm. Russian Federation have the authority to hold them? Mm-hmm. I think that's a valid philosophical question. And, and, and perhaps a legal one, too. I don't, know well, if that yes. was, I don't know if that was the basis for their... But the Duma is the one that released them, which is their legislative body. My read of this, having done the research, is they wanted to reconcile all this. They, they wanted... They wanted to they, give a chance. They to, wanted to heal. They wanted yeah. to heal this nation, and they said, you know, we're not that which you thought we were. We yeah. may have been at one time. Because a couple of years in, I yeah. mean, it's still this is not Andropov. This is not Stalin. Yeah. Right. This is it's the not real, Putin. It's not well. Right. The real yeah. test is the second election of mm-hmm. Boris Yeltsin to see what, and, and really even after him to see if one they can do it again, yep. have yep. a second election, but more importantly, can they transition? That's right. Yeah. Because you know that was one of the things that the European powers were looking at us for. What are they going to do when it comes time for Washington to hand over power? Yeah. And that. Had never been done. That's right. You know, other than one king to his son. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes like, that wasn't very dying. smooth either. And that, yeah, that often wasn't smooth. Yeah. It usually took somebody dying. This was going to be, yep, I'm out. I'm going to retire here. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's very unique. That's very unique. And that's right. And that's, that's when you realize things really are different over there. 
and uh, from what they were. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. sad that it's you know, all gone down the toilet now, but but not in the same way that it was. It no. hasn't it hasn't regressed to back well, to what it was. No, not to back what it was. But you know, I think most people in the West get the vibe that if if Putin could. It'd be back to the Soviet Union. He may not call it that, but he would very much yeah, like he's to have not, he's not He likes the power. I don't. He's not. He's not particularly enthralled with the communist uh, doctrine no, and all no. that stuff. It's he, not about that. He wants to. Be, he would. The money keeps him in power, right? So I mean, that's that's the thing. They have to keep the oil and gas money flowing he, he, in. He, he and he's very much a one strong man leader. That's I mean, that's yeah. Real, he's turned the whole whatever the trappings in, are really doesn't matter. Doesn't matter logically. Yeah. I mean, he's turned the whole joint into a banana republic, basically. Right. I mean, you know, he had his because they have a two term limit mm-hmm. uh, presidency. Well, he did his two terms, and then his handpicked puppet does his term, yeah. and then Yeltsin can come back. And that, I mean, uh, Putin can come back, yeah. and that's what he does. Mm-hmm. You know, which makes a mockery of the whole thing because yeah. he was what prime minister or some right, other. Right. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. Which is still huge, a huge amount of power mm-hmm. uh, in the system. So it's very much like like uh, Martin says. It is a banana, almost a banana republic. It's not quite that bad, but the politics really are yeah, strong I mean, man. It, it, yeah, it's kind it of is. The it's biggest a, banana republic. It's yeah. a very different thing to us. It, the difference is they have nuclear weapons and they have, have have actual natural resources that most banana republics don't have. Right. I mean, and again, that those resources are what's keeping Putin in power. Because everybody needs them, so he has that leverage. Which is why fracking and all the stuff we've been doing in this country has been so detrimental to them. Yeah, oh, he's yeah. had some very dicey moments. Yes, in the past. Uh, the more energy production years. there is outside of Russia, the less dependent Europe is on them. The less power he has. Right. Well, so it's less direct, money that the state. Well, has because as it's well. directly related to that. It's not. It's not a systemic thing. It's a power money thing. Oh yeah, and, that, I mean, and there's the difference. He he and his buddies control banks and they control the export of the oil and gas. And again, the, the you know the more you shut down energy production elsewhere, the more power he has. And. That's the way you counter him. Well, they, they, they're the enormous. Of course, Russia's the largest nation on earth. I mean, it's huge, and they have the natural resources that most places can only dream of, uh, and that's nothing new. It's just the system is has been. Well, they're the, using them now. Well, yeah, I was going to say the system has been greased where they can export these things and they can use them, and these right. things happen. A lot of what they export, though, probably could be used at home. Sure, absolutely. Uh, which. They, you know, that doesn't make any money, which is why they're not going to do it. Right. But their biggest natural resource is probably their timber, but that's not quite the the resource you can exploit like the rest of it. No, it's the oil and gas. Oil and gas. Western Europe needs it desperately, and that's what keeps them afloat. Yeah. If they could get oil and gas from another source, Putin would be toast. Yeah, but it's so... Or if enough people, enough countries would uh, put in some good, safe nuclear energy. Yeah. Yeah, well, France. Which is not an oxymoron. No, not at all. France has uh, done a lot of that. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's still true, but at one time, France was 85% on nuclear power. Yeah. yeah. And I think I think you're very close to being right. I don't. I, I can't give you the updated yeah. thing anymore. I, I, I'm pulling that number kind of out my rear end, but that's what I remember reading at yeah, some point exactly. this years ago. Mm-hmm. So it could have gone either way because plants, you know, the age, they need to be replaced. And if it's anything like in the U.S., you know, getting a new nuclear plant approved is damn near impossible. Right. Well, we, uh, we hey, you did, did great, it. man. You did great. We, we, that, we I thought laid that all was, this uh, out. Yeah, super informative and very lively. And 
It lived up to my anticipation. Well, um, you did a great I, job. I am in awe. I am in awe from that, sir. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun thing, and it's the basis for the novel I'm writing. So that's the reason I've done this research, folks. I don't just know all this stuff. I mean, I'm yeah. smart, but come on now. Yeah, that's, but this it, is. I mean, you pick something here that it is a very important moment in history, and it's a recent moment and that it, we can get our heads around. That's right. We should know it. There's but we don't. But yeah, we don't. We, we, we don't know zip about it. But you know what? That's not that much different from us, you know, knowing in the same way as our parents did about mm-hmm. the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. You know, yeah, we were not alive for that. So, you know, and even Watergate. You know, most of our memories of Watergate is. Where the hell are my cartoons? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you these know? people are talking, and I don't understand. And all I want to do is watch Bugs Bunny. Right. Yeah. You know, that was a big deal for us. Yeah. Who know, is was... this idiot John Dean that we keep seeing on this television screen all the time? So you know, I, I understand the the lack of the younger generation knowing and understanding about this, but uh, you know, part of it is the history you live is what you're most familiar with, unless you're nerds like us. Yeah, but man, this this changed the world so much. It was it really it was did. so much of a very hopeful, positive moment of hey, holy cow. All these missiles and all this aren't it, pointed at us anymore. It, the, well, the, we don't need they them. were. They were, but the fingers aren't on triggers anymore. Like well, but they weren't. They're like if it could have taken hold, it's like none of this is even needed anymore. That's correct. We could have taken them all apart, and a lot of them did come up. I mean, That's right. yeah, uh, the republics hired us to, to come, come in, yeah. come in and get this stuff. Yeah, uh, they didn't hire Putin to come and get it. They hired well, us. Would have been Yeltsin at the time, but yes. Well. Well, I think Over some of the years, yeah. it depends on how long you want to stretch this. Yeah, out. yeah. it did. It, and it took. It did. It takes. Yeah. It took twenty years. Right. But uh, you know, it was. It was this really hopeful super moment in the early nineties when it's like, holy cow, maps are changing weekly. Yeah. <laughs> this this could really end the whole Cold War. It could really change the whole world. There really could be peace, like was envisioned at the end of World well, War II. Well, for about five to ten years. Yeah, it really was different. You know, the yeah. '90s did not have the threat of nuclear Armageddon hanging over it. That's right. But why was everybody so grouchy in the '90s then? Because we didn't have an external foe. That's right. And we turned our our animus internal. I really think that's part of it. Because I think the '90s is when things really started societally for the U.S. going off the rails in terms of the us versus them. Well, that's right. Because you always have to have a them. Right, and, and that's part of the problem. If you then, don't have, if it's not over there, it suddenly becomes here. Right, and when it's over there, it's a lot easier easier to unite people around a common foe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our next episode, we're going to be doing Abraham Lincoln quotes, mm-hmm. uh, not to jump on Francis's uh, no, no, that's a- ending, true. but you know, uh, Lincoln has a quote about that where he talks about you know, it's very easy to unite people, uh, but you're going to unite them either against the external foe or the internal foe. That's right. And I think that's very true. What happened in the nineties? Yes. Yeah, and it's just like, hey, are you? Gen Xers that are younger than us, stop being so, so down in the mouth. Cheer up! This was a hopeful moment. It really was. Trust us. Francis, what's next? Well, you've kind of already <laughs> talked about. I know, that. but we got to say, Francis, what's that's, next? That's <laughs> right. No, we're we're going to do two. The next two episodes are going to be on Lincoln. We've talked about this for some time, but we're going to do a a quotations of Lincoln for Code of Honor for Code of Honor and then we're going to talk about the man the presidency as best we can do in an hour my god I mean we could we could do a whole series on Lincoln yes as much as I like to keep our episodes uh, less than an hour it's going to be hard to do that one yeah I don't see how we can do it with Lincoln but uh, and the man is eminently quotable 
And, oh, yes. yes. I mean, we. Uh, I'm very interested to see where we go with this because there's thousands upon thousands we could choose. We're going to pick just three, and we're going to put those forth to you next episode. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.